All right, so Matthew 16, 13 through 20, title of the message is The Church That Jesus is Building. And uh, the Bible says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am? The, uh, uh, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I actually prefer a different translation where it says, whatever you bound, bind on earth has already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. I prefer that. It is, a, it is also a way to translate the scripture, so it's not out of line. It's just another way of translating it. But for me, it's always, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not heaven as it is in earth. It's always heaven first. So verse 20, then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. So kind of a little bit of background. As uh, people of God who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we, we know and believe that he descended from heaven into this realm, this earth, and humbled himself by becoming a man. Uh, he came not in a palace. He didn't come as a full-blown military uh, uh, general, but he came as an infant, born to a virgin, Mary, and he found himself being surrounded by the poor shepherds of his day as he lay in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. Now wise men and shepherds recognized him, but kings and uh, leaders and Sadducees and Pharisees and the religions of the, of the day did not. Now as he, as he grew up and he began his ministry, he traveled the nation of Israel, he ministered in the power of the Spirit, and uh, he healed all those who were oppressed of the devil, those that would come to him. His words and his works testified to who he was the promised messiah but many still could not or would not see it in our text jesus turns to his disciples and he asks them first who do people say that he is but then after they say some say elijah some say the prophet they say who do you say that i am and it's this text that we just read that we want to look into a little bit more in depthly as we continue on through through this evening so the first, I just kind of did real simple headings, just kind of to touch on some of the things we want to look at. First one we want to look at is that word rock. Uh, just kind of give you a, 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 the text again. He said, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say today that you are Peter. By the way, the word Peter, his real name is Simon, but Jesus called him Peter. In Greek, it's the word Petros, which means rock, all right? And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, uh, Simon is the first disciple uh, to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, uh, the one that the Israelites have been looking for, the, the one that was promised throughout Scripture. Jesus then calls Simon uh, uh, Peter, which means rock. And then he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, a lot of people, depending on how you look at it, they're assuming that he's talking about Peter because he just called him a rock. Uh, but the reality is, I don't believe that Jesus was referring to Peter. I believe that Jesus was referring to himself, uh, the confession of faith in him that Peter made, but upon 
that confession of faith, that recognition that I am the Messiah, I will build my church. And you say, well, how do you, how do you come to that conclusion? It says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, concerning to him, coming to him as to a living stone, so we too are called living stones, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built upon a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, or it is written in, in scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief corner stone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to, who you believe, to, whom, to you who believe, he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and they stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. So what I'm wanting you to see here is that in that day and time, they would build by getting, um, they didn't have, um, like we have today, a lot of the equipment that we have today. So what they would find is they would find a stone, and it would be a perfect stone, and then they would lay this in the corner, and everything else would be built off that stone. So it was important that that stone would be true. Now what you're putting next to that stone is you're putting other stones, and the Bible says that he is building his church, and he's building it with living stones, but the chief cornerstone is Jesus. So I believe personal opinion, you're welcome to disagree with me, not a problem with that, because there are different ways of interpreting, but I believe that Jesus is saying, I called you Peter, you're a rock, but upon, you can't see it, but I believe he was pointing to himself, upon this rock, I will build my church, of which you are a part, you are a living stone, right? So, the second thing we want to look at today, we looked at that word rock, is the word church. Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church jesus what's interesting is that jesus did not say i will build my temple or he didn't say and by the way the it sounds like the volume in the in the monitor went down and it really helps me when it's higher i know there's ringing I, i'd rather have a little bit of ringing and more volume than no ringing and less volume so um so anyway it, 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 he didn't say i will build my temple or i will build my synagogue uh, those were the two religious institutions of the day that people understood so when the moment came to introduce his uh, uh, people who what he was building his transformational agency Jesus actually selected another term that wasn't part of Jewish tradition wasn't part of Jewish vocabulary it was part of Greek vocabulary it was part of Greek culture uh, uh, but he chose the term church which comes from the Greek word ekklesia. And this word is a compound of the Greek words ek and kaleo. The word ek conveys the idea of an exit or a separation or to be called out. And the word kaleo means to be beckoned, to call, to invite, or to summon. So when these two words are joined, they form the word ekklesia, which we translate as the word church, which describes those who are called and separated. They're called out of their culture, they're called out of their lives and separated to serve on a prestigious assembly. So it's, it's, it's interesting that Jesus didn't say, I'm gonna build my temple, I'm gonna build my synagogue, but he said, I'm gonna build my ecclesia. And I wanna say that word ecclesia so you get the understanding of what we're talking about when we say the word church. Because to us, church means one thing, but to that culture, the word ecclesia meant something else. 
The earliest examples of the word ekklesia is found in writings about, uh, uh, about uh, Athens, the Greek city Athens, where it was used to denote a prestigious assembly of Athenian citizens who regularly met to discuss civil matters. At these meetings, the distinguished citizens determined laws, debated public policy, formulated new policies, argued and ruled in judicial matters, elected the chief magistrates of the land, and decided who should be banished, and so on and so on. Interesting that nowadays we believe that people that are called out of the world should no longer serve in judicial functions or in governmental functions, when that was totally the opposite of the word ecclesia meant in that day. All right? So to be called out from society and to be invited to be a member of this assembly was a great honor. Consequently, the general public in Jesus' day understood ecclesia to mean both the secular institution and the governmental system that it represented. So, um, now come on now. There we go. With this in mind, the New Testament meaning of ecclesia is clear. The local church, which is what ecclesia means, is how we translate it, is a body of individuals who have been called out, called forth, and separated for the purposes of God, to be, to be used in the government of God. The church is God's assembly in every town and city composed of people who have been saved and called out to make eternal decisions that will affect the very atmosphere of the local region that they're a part of. What that should reveal to us is that God never intended for the local church to be simply a quiet, hidden body of believers. Rather, he intended for a church to be his voice and ruling power in each community. A special assembly comprised of people who have been called out to make decisions that will impact the atmosphere of their local environment for God. All right, now don't, please don't go off on a tangent when I say, uh, the, you know, when I'm talking about his uh, uh, local uh, power in the, or ruling power in each community. We don't rule by subjugating people. We rule, uh, Jesus said, uh, actually when, in, in the book of Genesis, when God created them, he said, let them have dominion. How do you have dominion in the world around you? Well, in that particular context, is by serving, by influencing. And as a church, we're supposed to serve, we're supposed, but we're also supposed to influence. We're supposed to be salt and light. Salt is a preservative, but light is uh, um, something that we give to the world around us. Without the church, the world is dark. But what the church has been wanting to do for so long, and yes, it's my opinion, you may have a different opinion, I'm okay with that, but I've been a Christian for 30, uh, let's see, I can't, every time, 30, uh, 37 years now. And what I see of the church is that the church, uh, the culture of the church is not to get involved with the world, but to separate it from the world. I'm not saying to be worldly, that's totally different. The world is supposed to be separate from the world, become like God, but Jesus sent us back into the world to influence the world of which we were a part of, of which if somebody had not gone out there and rescued us, we would still be lost. Right? So we're supposed to go out into the world to rescue the world, but it's also my opinion that we're supposed to influence the world. Because when you take light out of the world, then what you're going to have is darkness. And what does the church complain about is that the world is getting darker and darker. The reason the world is getting darker and darker is because the light is hiding itself under a bushel. 
All right, anyway, let's go back. What that should reveal to us is that God never intended for the local church to be simply a quiet, hidden body of believers. Therefore, when the New Testament used the word ecclesia to depict the local church, it's conveying an incredibly important message right from the start. God's plan for each congregation was not that they hide and cower in fear, but that they rise to a position of influence in the place where God has called them to fulfill the specific their specific assignment for the region. The church was intended to be a brilliant beacon of light in the midst of a dark and troubled town, city, region, wherever we're at. Now remember, the church is not an institution. The church is not a building. The church is comprised of people, right? We are the church. We are God's call. He called us out of the world, yes, but not to be uh, uh, separate from the world, but to go back into the world, just like Jesus left heaven to come into the world. Why did he come into the world? See, the religious crowd said, you shouldn't be out there in the world. You should be over here with us, away from the world. But Jesus says, I, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. It's not the healthy that need a physician, but the sick. All right, let's go to the third uh, word here, the word keys, Matthew 16 and 19. And Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, Whatever you bind on earth, and again, I like the translation that says, will already have, well, has already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. And again, I like that because Jesus says, I say what I hear my Father saying. I do what I see my Father doing. So he followed heaven's lead, and I believe we're supposed to do the same. So when we talk about keys, what we're referencing is the idea of authority. God has given the church authority on earth as his official Representatives. It doesn't mean we have authority from earthly powers, but God has given us authority. I've given you authority over to trample upon serpents and scorpions and upon all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means harm you. We've been given authority. By giving the church authority, uh, let me give you another example. Jesus said, all authority has been given unto me. How much authority does the devil have? None, because Jesus has all authority. But then he says to his disciples, go. Go in what? in my delegated authority. By giving the church authority, what the first century church understood was they were the ones, to use a modern day example, that carried the football. They were on offense. Right? But what have we been doing for so long? Playing defense. The New Testament examples of church are far different from the modern day perception that it's a place where members go usually once a week. Back then, and if it's not raining, <laughs> if it's just raining or the pollen count is too high or, you know, the, the dust is too dusty, people don't come to church anymore, you know. Um, well, anyway. <laughs> Back then, church always referred to people, never to buildings, and it was made up of individuals who operated 24-7 from house to house all over town as a transforming organism, not as an inactive institution. In other words, you're not a you're not a church. You're not a church. You're not a Christian only when you go to church. You're a Christian all the time. You're always on. You're always on. Your light is always on. It never should be dark. There's no secular and sacred. And when I'm in the sacred, that's when I'm a Christian. And when I'm not, you know, uh, you know, you, you know, uh, you got to play by the world's rules. No, you never play by the world's rules. You play by God's rules, always. And God's rules always trump 
anything that the world can throw away. But anyway, Acts 2, 46 to 47, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. How often were they doing this? Daily. I'm not saying that we need to have daily meetings of the church. What I'm saying, what I want you to gather from this, is that they were Christians 24 hours a day, every day. Right? Now, you say, well, I can't gather at the church every day, but you might have Christians in your uh, uh, workplace. You might have Christians that you know that you can talk to on a regular basis about the Lord. Right? I mean, people are tweeting stuff all the time. Um, you know, the, <laughs> when I think of Tweety Bird, I think of Tweety Bird, you know. Anyway, they're tweeting stuff all the time. They're posting all this time. Why can't you be an influence for God? Why, why just fall into the trap of, complaining oh I can't stand this or I feel bad my stomach hurts my toes is you know all this kind of stuff instead of using it as a platform to 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 further the kingdom of God you can do that on a daily basis right the church's objective was a transformation of people and of society rather than acting as a transfer station for saved souls bound for heaven and I'm talking about the New Testament church. In fact, the New Testament church was so vibrant and expansive that it overcame the powerful political and religious establishments bent on stamping it out since its very beginning. Its vitality is attested to by the fact that in a matter of weeks it filled Jerusalem, the city that crucified its founder with its doctrine, leading many thousands in just a few days to join its ranks by publicly confessing that Jesus was indeed the Son of God. Its capacity for growth was so vibrant that two years after Paul planted the ecclesia in Ephesus, all who lived in the Roman province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. No small accomplishment since the population of that region exceeded a million people. And not long afterwards, Paul was able to state with conviction that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel. That was a surface area of around 300,000 square miles leading Paul to set his evangelistic eyes on Spain, a place that stood some 3,600 miles by land from Jerusalem, the birthplace of Christianity. What makes this stunningly remarkable is that Jesus' ecclesia accomplished all of this without military or governmental support. It was instead a massive people movement that swept region after region victoriously as the counterculture to the existing status quo. The magnitude of the church's expansion in such, in such a relatively short time is far for us to imagine as the norm since it was accomplished without seminaries, campuses, full-time staff, or professional ministers. Moreover, with the exception of some epistles that circulated regionally, it didn't even have the New Testament. Yet it was so healthy and powerful that rather than being an item on someone else's agenda, the ecclesia was the agenda setter. That didn't mean that it was done easily or without cost. The believers early on suffered terribly as a direct consequence of persecution. For decades, they were martyred and they were tortured uh, church meetings had to be conducted in secret because swift retribution would be brought upon them if their actions were ever made known yet despite this God, Christ still acknowledged them for who they were his ecclesia his called out from the world and separated to exercise spiritual power over the bleak and seemingly hopeless atmosphere that surrounded them 
They were his precious appointed church, his governing body in their respective towns, cities, and regions whose purpose is to further the kingdom of God on this earth by equipping the saints and being an influence of God's truth and righteousness to a lost world. So listen, listen to what I'm telling you. It's difficult sometimes to be a Christian. We will suffer for being a Christian. We will be persecuted for being a Christian. But can I just enlighten you that somebody getting mad at you on Facebook is not suffering persecution for Jesus. Somebody unfollowing you on Facebook or YouTube, which has happened a couple of times, not because of the preaching, but because we accidentally put some music on there that, that, that uh, did some copyright law. YouTube taking you down is not suffering persecution. Suffering persecution was what the early Christians had to go through. It's, it's, it's what some of the people in Canada had to go through when they tried to have assemblies and, and they forbid them from having assemblies and when they tried to do it, they threw them in jail. It's what the people in China are having to go through when uh, to confess Christ, they have to do it in secret. They have to meet in secret. They don't, they don't deny the Lord Jesus Christ, but they meet in secret because the public assemblies are, are barred. They're, they're, and so they, they meet, in, but what they do is they meet in secret. They meet. They don't stop being Christians. They don't bow. And many of them are thrown in jail, and many of them disappear. But in the midst of all of that, it's their willingness to stand for Christ that eventually changes things. It's prayer. It's witnessing. It's being the light, being the salt. It's not hiding out, but being who you are, being what God has called you to be. We are called to change this world. If you don't like the city, do something about it. If you don't like this country, do something about it. Oh, no, no, we're not called to be involved in the world. We're not called to be involved in politics. We're not called to be on the... I'm not telling you to be involved in politics. I'm saying be involved in doing what God has called you to do, which is to be a beacon of light. See all this stuff is happening at the school boards. Where are the Christians? Where are they? We're not going to, you know, you know, you know, you don't, I just have to acquiesce. You don't just have to accept everything that's going on. We actually have legitimized orderly ways of saying, I don't want to do that. I don't believe that. I don't think that's a godly thing to do. But we have to be willing to stand up and say something. Right? And I believe that some of us may be called to a school board. Some of us may be called to serve on a city council. Some of us may be called to serve in government. To do what? To be light? To be an influence? Do you, you understand what I'm saying? You say, well, God wouldn't want us to do that. Well, did you know that he took Joseph and put him in government so that he could be an influence for good in the Egyptian nation? Did you know that God took Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and secretly put them in the, one of the highest positions in government so that they could be an influence in that nation? And did you know that they actually, uh, because of their influence, King Nebuchadnezzar actually became a follower of God? And do you think that if the highest position in the nation, but not only in the nation, since it was the chief nation of all nations at that particular time, becomes a follower of God, don't you think that's going to have an impact? Yeah. Do, you think, do you know that God secretly was able to 
put Esther in a position of influence that saved his people, but also influenced the government for God? We're not supposed to be involved in the affairs of this world. And that's why we're in the position that we're in. And if you go back to what the original perception of God for his church was, you'll need to come to a place of understanding that it was not to be hiding out in a building. Hey, we want to get people saved. We go get people saved, but let's bring them into the church and keep them here. Don't let them go out there. Keep them in here so that when Jesus comes back, we have a nice, but nobody's playing on the field. It's like getting a bunch of people to play football and we never play. Right? We just buy the jerseys, put our names on the back, get numbers for ourselves, and God help us if somebody gets the same number that we have. <laughs> yeah, we practice all the time, right? Yeah, that's right. But we never go out there and play. And God set us apart. He came into this world to do the stuff. And he sent us into the world to do the stuff. But we could get hurt. We could, Jesus said, he that would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow after me. He also said in Romans 12 and 11, and, and they overcame by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, because they did not love their lives even unto death. In light of that understanding, in light of what we kind of looked at here in a very small way. There's a lot we could teach about this. How do we, the church, fulfill God's purpose for us? Well, I pulled out a passage, and I'm just going to bring a couple of principles from here that maybe we can take home with us. Mark 11, 23 through 24, Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. Uh, another way of saying that is have God-like faith. For surely I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that the things he says will be done, he will have whatever he says. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. Right? I think a lot of times what's happening is we're believing for personal things, and God wants us to begin to believe for bigger things. I, I, okay, I'm going to tell the story. Some of y'all haven't heard this story, but I'll tell you the story. Uh, somewhere around 1999, 2000 or so. And I didn't have, I didn't have a grid for this. I didn't have a grid for it, so I didn't see anything in it. I mean, I just, I, I just passed on it because I didn't. I have a grid for it now. But I, I went to go visit my dad's homeland, which is Bolivia, and I've done that many times. And, and while I was there, my uncle uh, took me to a, a small village. Um, it's bigger than a village, but it's not as it's not like a city here. And um, so we went over there just to have a couple of days of vacation. And there's a river that separates it. And on the other side of the river, there's another village. So um, I, I, when you go to South America, I stand out, I would imagine, as an American. So um, it was, we decided to cross over to the other side of the river. And the river wasn't like super, you know, it wasn't like two miles wide. But, it, you know, it wasn't small either. It was bigger than the, wider than the Brazos for sure. But we crossed over to the other side. And when I got to the other side, there was a motorcycle that came up to me and said, the mayor would like to talk to you. And I'm like, what? What? 
the motorcycle was like the cab that day. And he said, yeah, the mayor would like to talk to you. Okay, you know? So he got on the motorcycle, took us to his office. And uh, it wasn't like going to the White House. It wasn't like going, you know, anything like that. It was just in the building. But it was the mayor's office anyway, the mayor of the city. And he pulls me in. He said, I know you don't know who I am, but I noticed you're here. And, and I said, I, I don't know why, um, you know, we're, we have the struggles that we're having. But what we're having is we have kids that they're graduating and they're going to the big city, the city of a million people. They're going over there because there's no future for them here. There's nothing to keep them here. And he said, I don't know what to do about it, but I just felt I wanted to talk to you. And I said, look, I don't have a lot to offer, but I do have this to offer. He said, I have land. He said, I just, if you will create something, a college or train the kids, something that will give them skills where they don't have to go to the big city to be trained, they can stay here, then possibly we may not lose some of them. I will give you 500 hectares of land. A hectare is uh, 2.25 acres and so basically I said I'll give you 1250 acres of land to do something and I'm thinking to myself I'm a preacher I'm not supposed to be involved in stuff like that why would I do something I didn't have a grid for it I don't believe looking back that that was a, that was not every good opportunity is a God opportunity but I have a grid for it now I don't have to know how to do it but now I have an understanding that the church is not supposed to be hiding out, being ineffective in the world. God wants us to be effective. God wants us to be salt. He wants us to be light. And so if that opportunity came again, then I, I would pray. I would still ask, Lord, are you in this? I didn't have to figure everything out. But it would not be, no, there's no way because I'm a preacher, I'm supposed to be in the church, I'm supposed to be doing, that's what it means to be serving God, to be in a church, out of the world, not in the world, not actually doing something of significance. Not that what I do is insignificant, it's just, you understand what I'm saying? Right. So, now I realize, wait, that could be a God thing, Right? And some people, you know, today, oh, man, if I, could just, if I could just work in the church and do stuff in the church, and that's a wonderful thing to do. We, we want you to do that. And, but, but you have this mentality that if you're not doing something in the church, you're not being effective for God. And what you need to realize is that God actually put you where you're at so that you could extend the kingdom where you're at by being salt and light where you're at. But not by being silent not by being apathetic, not by being, um, you know, useless, but by being useful for the master. Well, how can I be useful? Well, let's go back to this text. So, whoever says to this mountain, be removed. So, first of all, you have to recognize there are mountains. What is a mountain? Well, a mountain is an obstacle. That's what the context is here. It's, it's to us. I mean, I, there is a mountain of a problem. Right? And a mountain of a problem is that's something that I can't tackle. It's something that I can't do. First of all, as Christians, we need to recognize, yes, there are obstacles in our lives, but how many of you know and are starting to recognize there are obstacles in our workplace, there are obstacles in the place where we study, the place, uh, and there are obstacles in our society. There are obstacles in our region. You know, one of the things, Brenda George is, is a pastor in, in Freeport, and 
God called her and is using her to do something about the suicide that's happening among the young people of this county. He said, well, you know, they should be doing something for God. Not, that is doing something for God. Who better to lead somebody than somebody that knows God, can pray, can believe, can, can marshal not just uh, uh, people, but also angelic hosts to go against these things in life. We have authority. Well, that's a mountain of a problem. Well, we can speak to mountains. Recognize that there are mountains. We need to stop being passive and become active in bringing the kingdom of God to bear in the world in which we live. In other words, we need to wake up and see the problems and not just hide our heads in the sand, just have good worship services and pastor preach 45 minutes. If we can get him to preach 30, it'd be a lot better. But again, be ineffective. We need to recognize there are problems, right? And then when we recognize there are problems, we need to resist those problems. How do we resist? Well, James 4 and 7, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is the part we may not like, but I believe Jesus wants us to grasp, as his representatives like him were sent into the world to move the mountains out of the way with the authority that he has given us. It begins in prayer. We need to pray. We need to say, that ain't right. But as we pray, Jesus said, the harvest is right, but the laborers are few. What are we going to do about it? Pray that the Lord has sent forth laborers in this harvest field. I believe, it doesn't say, but I believe they may have had a prayer meeting right there. And while they had a prayer meeting, all of a sudden Jesus said, now Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, dot, 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 we've been praying for laborers. Guess what? I think you guys are qualified. <laughs> I'm setting you apart to go out and do what I'm doing. Right? And I'm giving you authority to preach, and I'm giving you authority to cast out demons. Right? And that's what happens when we pray. Not only when we pray, yes, we're dealing with the stuff, but also we begin to realize, God, there, there, something needs to take place. Something needs to happen. God, do something. Oh, if only there was somebody there, and that's what God's waiting for. You're a somebody. But I don't know what to do. Qualified. It's not your ability, it's your availability. And when we hear God and we understand God's calling us, like Isaiah, we say, all right, Lord, here am I, send me. Now, we might have a couple of Moses moments, but, uh, 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 but at the end, if you wrestle with God, you're never going to win. The best thing to do when you wrestle with God is to give up. Let him work his way in you so that you don't end up with a dislocated hip. I'm talking metaphorically, right? So uh, we need, the Bible says in Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done where? On earth, in my city, in my state, in my nation, in my family, as it is in heaven. So how's that going to happen? Don't be apathetic. These all start with an A. Don't acquiesce. You know what the word acquiesce means? means um i should have put a definition up there don't submit don't just be passive don't just whatever and don't accommodate sin is sin don't accommodate listen as a church we don't need to be changing what scripture says to accommodate the culture we need to we need to stand for what god says whether the culture accepts it or not do you understand? 
you don't, I'm sure that when they're out in the plant and they're building new, new plants or new factories, I'm sure that you're going to have a pipe fitter or a, a welder do something wrong. So when they do something wrong and they go to the plans, the person that's in charge of the plans doesn't go, well, we're off by about 15 feet, but you know what, it's okay. I don't want to cause problems, you know. Now, what do they do? They said, tear it down and do it again because it doesn't match the specifications. It's not what it's supposed to be. They don't acquiesce. They don't accommodate. They said it doesn't meet the standard. We're not called to compromise the standard. We don't determine truth. God determines truth. We're ambassadors, not legislators. We're ambassadors for the kingdom. It doesn't mean that we're uh, uh, hateful or hurtful. It's just the Bible says. There's 89. Last A couple of years ago, there was 89 different identities that people have you know today and whatever but the Bible says he created the male and female the Bible says well you have to acknowledge this in my life the Bible says that's all well that's being hurtful and hateful to me the Bible says I'm not being hurtful I'm just quoting the Bible you understand I'm not gonna compromise truth I'm not gonna change truth I'm not trying to hurt you I'm just going to stand for what God's word says. Be proactive in bringing the kingdom of God to bear in the world around us. Our lives, our children's lives, our city, state, nation are at stake. And then remove is another one. Speak up, stand up, Ezekiel 22 and 30. So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of a lamb that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Do you know that nature abhors a vacuum? When the church fails to do what it's supposed to do, the enemy fills the gap that was intended for us to fill. You know what evil is? It's the absence of good. People always ask, why did God create evil? He didn't. Why did God create the devil? He didn't create the devil. He created Lucifer, but he didn't create the devil. So what is the devil? The devil is um, the total absence of what God created him to be. You understand? So evil is not a uh, just an absence. There's actually a life to it. But what it is is the total opposite. It's it's uh, uh, so when we don't become the salt and light, when we don't uh, we don't function as salt and light, when we don't fill the gaps that he calls us to fill, the enemy does. And when the enemy does, there's darkness and evil. Matthew 12, 43 through 45. When an unclean spirit goes uh, out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. And he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty. That's the key. It's swept in an order, but most importantly, it is empty. Right? Then he goes in and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. And so it shall be with this wicked generation. Esther 4.14, if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews for another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, I, I don't, I, I, it's one way of reading it. You may not read it this way, but when God says relief will arise for the Jews from another place, it doesn't mean that it's going to arise in that generation. It'll arise but it could arise in the next generation. And so in the meantime, Esther 
and her house and perhaps that whole generation of Jewish people would be lost. Why? Because she was made a challenge. If you will step in and be and fulfill and, and, and do what God is asking you to do, then God can use you and perhaps God has created you and put you here for such a time as this. But if you don't, we'll have to wait for somebody else. But nature abhors a vacuum. You and your household will perish. I don't want me and my household to perish. I know one day I'm going to go be with the Lord. But I don't want to go be with the Lord at having nothing to show him, having buried my talent in the sand. I want to go be with the Lord saying, God, I've accomplished what you've asked me to do. However imperfectly it was, I, I did what you asked me to do. I was faithful, and I want him to stand before me one day, and I want to be able to stand before him and the righteous judge say, well done, good and faithful servant. Don't we want to do the same? Being good and faithful does not, is, is not equated to not causing problems. Being good and faithful is equated to doing God's will for your life. And what I'm trying to get you to understand is doing God's will is not to remain silent, not to not cause a stir. Well, just don't say anything and the government won't know. The devil hates Christians. Now, I'm not equating the government with the devil, but anyway. Doesn't seem there's a lot of righteousness going on there. Why? Because nature abhors a vacuum. You hear what I'm saying? You think you're going to survive just by being quiet. You're not. He'll find you out. The thief comes but to kill, steal, and destroy. But God has come that you may have life and life more abundantly. And so the best place to be is in the center of God's will. And I guess what I want you to understand is that as the church, his center of his will is to be salt and light. To do the work of God. To do the will of God to pray, to win the lost, and to fill the vacuums that are being left open because the church has vacated its place in society, vacated its ability to influence, lost its voice. No longer. We need to become everything God's called us to be. We are the church. Upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia. I will build my called out community of believers and they will have authority and they will have an impact and they will become all I've asked them to be. Yeah. Jesus will get his inheritance. It's going to happen. If it doesn't happen in this time, God will raise up someone else somewhere down the road. But our house and our life may prove ineffective.